Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had, which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at, I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. In Hillsborough County on Highway 41, just 10 miles south of Tampa sits Gibsonton, once known as the strangest town in America. It's been called Gibtown or Showtown USA by its nearly 14,000 residents. It has always been the retirement or wintering home of traveling show folks for over 70 years. It's also the location of the International Independent Showman's Association and Gibtown's International Independent Showman's Museum, which houses a wide assortment of antique equipment and exhibits that tell a carnival story. On the surface, Gibsonton appears to be yet another nondescript backwater town, a town frozen in time since the interstate system replaced the original U.S. highways. But Gibsonton has a secret, a hidden identity to be discovered if one ventures down the side streets of town. It is near the winter home for the Ringling Brothers Circus at Tampa, Sarasota, and Venice in various times. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And today I have a show. You just saw me uh, take a drive through a very small town in central Florida called Gibsonton. And uh, present day, if you drive through Gibsonton, you might get an idea kind of what there is about this town, but not really. And I wanted to go ahead and tell you what the fantastic and intriguing story there is behind the town of Gibsonton, which, as I stated before, is just south of Tampa. Uh, a lot of mystery, a lot of history also. Uh, and it's so fascinating that even uh, several uh, shows and movies have used this town as a backdrop for their stories. And I think you're going to find it just as fascinating as I did. Now, during the Depression, carnival and circus people would use this as their winter home. And what they would do is they would park their trailers in their off-season near the Alafia River. Now, this was the days of the big 10-in-1 sideshows. Uh, that 
what they featured would be the human oddities like the bearded lady, uh, Inferno the fire eater, Grace McDaniels the mule faced woman, Priscilla the monkey girl, and her husband. He was known as Alligator Man or Lizard Man, the Lobster Family, and Dottie the Fat Lady. Now, <clears throat> besides the great weather that Florida offered during the winter, Gibsonton offered something very unique, was that they had a zoning law that allowed the residents to keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawn. This was done to accommodate the majority of the residents that thronged to this area because of how they made their living. Now, in other places, these strange people would have met with a degree of social rejection. But in Gibtown, as it was known, they were treated as average people. First of all, bonded by their nomadic lifestyle of the traveling show and just because they were in and of themselves uh, because of oddities, because they might have some type of impairment, uh, because of they would have been rejected by society at large during those times. Now, in 1949, there was a gentleman by the name of Al Tomaini, and he measured eight and a half feet tall. He was considered a giant, and he wore a 22-inch shoe size. Now, once he retired from the road, he settled there in Gibsonton. Now, he had a wife named Jeannie who measured two feet and she was billed as the half girl. Now, once they moved there and they retired from, you know, going on the road, they started a trailer park and a fishing camp that became legendary among Tampa Bay fishermen known as Giants Camp. Now, Al and Jeannie were known as the world's strangest couple. And uh, not only did he start that fishing camp, Al served as Gibtown's police and fire chief. And he continued to operate the fish camp until he died in 1962. Now, in its glory days, Gibtown had the only post office in the United States with a specially made low counter for midgets. Now, the local fruit stand was operated by the famed Hilton Siamese Twins. And down at the Showman's Lounge, the late Melvin Burkhart uh, would liven up the bar. He would hammer six-inch spikes up his nose. Uh, on the road, he had been known as the human blockhead and the rubber-faced man. Now, of course... Uh, because this is how the majority of the residents made their living, every spring the town's population would drop by more than half as they would go out to work the fairs and festivals throughout the country. And it's probably the only place in America where your local police chief was once a dwarf and your former fire chief was over eight feet tall. Now, like I said, this Gibsonton really started becoming popular about 70 years ago. Uh, this was during the 1940s. Uh, and you have to understand, back then, uh, this area that they settled in, which was right next to the river, was, yes, it was south of Tampa, but it wasn't really that populated, which is also, I think, what attracted them to stay there. Uh, because uh, not only 
could they make rules as they went along, like what they did with the zoning, uh, they were able to, I guess, feel freer uh, versus if they had moved to a regular town or city. Now, the, the heyday of the sideshow business was in the 1920s and the 1930s. And ever since then, it's been declining. Uh, because back then, carnival sideshows were one of the few forms of entertainment for small-town America. Now, after World War II, people's tastes gradually became more sophisticated, and then that was the introduction of movies and television, and entertainment like what you would see in a sideshow, it just could not compete. And also, it became politically incorrect to market people, or in other words, to exploit them because they had some type of deformity. Now, uh, the last of these sideshow people, freaks, whatever you want to call them, because that's how they, you know, build themselves when they went uh, throughout the country. This is how they made their living for many years. Um, most of them are dying off. Uh, Jeannie Tomaini died in 1999. Melvin Burkhart, uh, he passed away in 2001. Um, little by little, and when you drive down through Gibsonton like I did, you might see some of the residents that still store like carnival rides and things like that but mostly what you see is maybe like broken down pieces of circus equipment uh, but nothing like what you saw in its heyday and as to the part that I said that you know sometimes some movies and shows have taken inspiration from Gibsonton one of the examples is the fourth season of uh the series American Horror Story, which was called Freak Show. And it took much of its inspiration directly from this town. They called it Jupiter, Florida. Uh, but indeed, because of course it was fictionalized, um, a lot of the storyline, for example, one of them was based on Lobster Boy. Uh, in the uh, Freak Show, American Horror Story, his name was Jimmy Darling. Now, the, the show, of course, was set during the 1950s, again, when the freak shows were on the decline. And, of course, this is added to the drama of that show. And, of course, you know, all the people, all the, all the characters. Now, mentioning that story about Lobster Boy, now we're going to cross into, believe it or not, uh, there was... A murder that was tied into a very long time family that was involved in sideshows which was the Styles family and I'm gonna go ahead and get into that because unfortunately it ended very very tragically for some of the members of this family hi everybody so now we're gonna get into what's considered by many uh, as I refer to a, a tragedy that ended in murder and not only of one person but of two people and uh, and it started in other words there was so many signs along the way that this was exactly where eventually this was going to lead to and 
Mainly this deals with uh, a man named Lobster Boy. His real name was Grady Stiles Jr. And um, he was born into his family, the Stiles family, uh, were already involved in what they called the sideshow or the freak show circuit. All right. He uh, was born in uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he really didn't get too much of a choice of what he was going to do with his life. Uh, he had a rare condition known as electrodactyly. Now, this ailment, it's, it's something that's genetic. It's where your fingers are fused together and they give the appearance of having claws instead of hands. And his family had been affected by this since at least the 1840s, according to what his own father claimed. And of there's a 50% chance, more or less, that offspring from one of the parents will come out with his genetic trait. So when he was born this way, by the time that he was seven years old, his own father had introduced him into the family business, which was touring the country, uh, the sideshows as the lobster family. And he not only had it on his hands, he also had it on his legs, uh, and which this forced him to use a wheelchair. Now, the thing was that they used this hereditary condition to their advantage. His father had it, and he called himself Lobster Man. So when he brought in his son at the age of seven, he gave him the name or the moniker of Lobster Boy. And uh, so, like I said, as at a very young age, he was introduced into and became a sideshow performer. Now, when they weren't on the road, they would be living in a Gibsons in Florida, uh, which where a lot of the other carnival performers would spend the winters. And they were, this is where all these different performers basically knew all the other families there, including like uh, Al and Jeannie Tomiani, uh, which were the sheriff, and uh, had, they had their fish camp. And in other words, they saw how these families, even if they didn't tour together, they all would come back and winter there. Now, he grew up, this was, in other words, his lifestyle. And when he was very young, there was a young lady by the name of Mary Teresa Stiles. Now, she had run away. She was a runaway. She came and tried to join the circus because she had a very uh, bad, a broken home life. And the two fell in love. They were very young. And they got married in 1958. And what she did was that she got involved with the sideshow life uh, because she could, there's, there's a lot of work there that doesn't necessarily have to be as a performer. Now, the think was that not too long after she they became married, she realized that despite how sweet he was during the time that they were courting each other, 
uh, if he drank alcohol, he became transformed into a very violent and abusive man. And unfortunately, as more time passed by, the more uh, of an alcoholic that he became. Now, because he had the deformed legs, he had an extremely powerful upper body. And he was able uh, to basically crawl, even if he wasn't in his wheelchair. And eventually, uh, his alcoholism led into physical abuse of his wife, Mary. Now, they had two daughters before they divorced in 1973. Mary then went off, married another sideshow performer named Harry Glenn Newman. And he was billed as the world's smallest man. Now, together, they had a son called Harry Glenn Newman III, who also became a performer in the show. And what he would do was he would pound nails into his nostrils and he became known as the human blockhead. This was his performance name. Now, in 1978, one of Mary and Grady Styles' daughters, 17-year-old Donna, tells her parents that she's pregnant and she's going to marry the young man that was responsible, the father of the child and who she was in love with. Now, Grady Styles wants to meet him and uh, because he wants to talk to him privately the day before the wedding. Now, when this man arrives to meet with Mr. Stiles, Lobster Boy, what did he do? He shot and killed the 18-year-old in cold blood. Killed him. Now, later on, Donna, his daughter, said that her father sat on the porch smiling and said, I told you I would kill him. Of course, there was no doubt whatsoever that he was the one that had committed the murder. And he went to trial for it. He was convicted of third-degree murder and was sentenced to 15 years of probation, mostly because his deformities kept him from going to prison as no state prison was equipped to deal with his physical needs. Also, by this time, he not only had the, the deformities that he had been born with, he was suffering from cirrhosis from his alcoholism, as well as emphysema from smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. And at this time, he was only in his early 40s. So believe it or not, even though he was clearly, clearly guilty of killing a young man, the father of his grandchild in cold blood, because no prison felt that they could house him or imprison him, he got off only with 15 years of probation. Now, in the meantime, he goes on and marries another woman, has two more children, and despite the many, many years of physical abuse, he, well, that, that uh, second marriage that he has also ends in divorce and then him and Mary reconcile and marry again in 1988 and of course Lobster Boy is promising to Mary that his drinking days are behind him but of course 
easier said than done. And soon after they remarried, he was back to drinking whiskey, uh, letting his temper get out of control, and of course, which resulted in physical abuse against his wife. And at this point, not only it becomes later on, it, it becomes obvious that not only did he abuse his wife, he abused his children as well as they were growing up. Um, and at this point, Mary was very scared of leaving her husband because she was afraid of what he was going to do to their children, two of who were born with the deformity, the electrodactyly. Now, for the next few years, she suffers in silence because he's drinking heavily, of course, every day, and he inflicts on her physical and mental abuse, again, on a daily basis. Now, for her, the final straw came on Thanksgiving weekend in 1992. Um, and later on, you know, what ended in murder, she testifies that she wakes him up and he's drunk and he's holding a butcher knife to her throat. And he says to her, one of these days I'm going to kill you and your family, but the time isn't right. And then what he did was he crawled away. Now, two days later, on the night of November 29th, 1992, she gets a hold of a hitman. Um, and what, because at this point, and later on she testifies that she did this under extreme duress because she's concerned not only for her life, but mostly for the life of her children. Uh, and what they do is that they hire someone to come and shoot him. And what he does is he creeps up behind Stiles as he sat in his trailer there in Gibsonton in his underwear. And this was a, an 18-year-old by the name of Christopher Wyatt. He also lived in Gibsonton. And they paid him $1,500 to kill Stiles. And he did just that. He fired two shots into his head. And Lobster Boy was dead at the age of 55. Now, the three people who were responsible for the murder, of course, they were arrested. And this, the ones that they, um, they accused, of course, were Mary Teresa Stiles' wife and her son by the other marriage, and the 18-year-old that they had hired, Christopher Wyant, as the hitman. And, of course, her defense was that if she hadn't killed him first, she knew that he was going to kill her and her family as well, based on the many years of abuse that she had gone through. Uh, as a matter of fact, during the trial, she said, my f husband was going to kill my family. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. Now, her, the, what, what ends up happening is they're all found guilty. They, they're all found guilty and they all receive prison sentences. She was sentenced to 12 years. Uh, Harry receives a 25-year term and Wyant was 
hit with a 27-year sentence behind bars. But the unlikely story of Grady Stiles Jr., a.k.a. Lobster Boy, remains one of the most unusual American true crime cases of the 20th century with one of the most unusual cast of characters. So now we're going to get to the good part. And the good part is called the ghost stories, or in this case, some urban myths. Now, uh, this is a story that's on the internet right now and that comes from somebody that lives in Gibsonton. And this is what they're retelling. Uh, I've lived in Gibsonton for 19 years. I live right off US 41 on Cracker Avenue. One night, me and my roommate were walking down the street on our way to the store. And as we got near US 41, we heard a loud scream. We looked around and saw nothing, so we kept walking. And again, we heard a loud scream. And yet again, we saw nothing. We were scared to death and we started running as we neared the ditch. We saw what appeared to be a transparent woman in pieces. Me and my friend looked at each other and we turned back, but she was gone. We did some research and there was a murder there 20 years ago where they found a woman dismembered and put into pieces in a trash bag. Now I did a little bit of research and that story is absolutely true. It, back in February of 2003, they did find a dismembered body of a woman right there on Cracker Avenue west of US 41. A few months later, her killer was identified as her husband who after killing her he used a small kitchen knife and box cutter to cut her to pieces so that urban myth is absolutely true now let's go on to another ghost story a few years ago I lived in the basement of a house on Malvina Street with my boyfriend this was his mother's house and it was at least over 120 years old. After living there a while, I realized that I never felt alone. My boyfriend George confessed something he hadn't told me until then, which is that he had his own experiences with the ghost right after moving in. He told me his cousin Earl had been staying with him, and they were both using the attic since it had two bedrooms up there. Right after staying at the house one night, he went to the bathroom which was downstairs and even though he was half asleep, he felt right away that he wasn't alone. When he got down to the bottom step of the stairway, he felt grabbed by unseen hands all over his body, grabbing him really tight. His screams brought all the family out of their bedrooms. In the next few hours, he had bruises all over his body. He was so scared that he slept downstairs on the couch until they got a bed ready for him downstairs. No more attic for him. Instead, he ended up sleeping in the basement. This is when I came into the picture. To me, the basement was always creepy and dark. I kept hearing things that didn't make sense. And every once in a while, I would hear a shuffling step at the other end of the basement even though I was alone there. 
I could feel something brush up against my arm, and sometimes I would smell cheap men's cologne. My boyfriend said that that smell probably was his grandfather who was dead. Once I went upstairs to Earl's room in the attic after having a fight with my boyfriend. Earl was hardly ever home and I was alone there. This is when I had my encounter with something really evil. Suddenly I heard a creaking sound coming from some wooden floorboards right next to the small sofa I was sitting on. I was so scared I couldn't move. And then I saw the imprint of someone sitting next to me on the cushion. I was really scared. But I went into pure terror when I felt pressure on my chest and arms when I tried to get up. When I felt it lessen, all I could do was scream for my boyfriend. That was the last time I ever went to the attic. Then one night, around 2 a.m., I started to hear what I realized was circus music, like an old-time sideshow circus music. Then I heard kids laughing, and I could feel the hair on my head stand up since there were no kids living in the house. Suddenly my boyfriend George, who I thought was asleep, said, Do you hear that? All I could say was yes. We were both so scared that we didn't even dare to move. Finally it stopped, and we both fell asleep. The next morning, to our surprise, George's mom angrily asked us why we had company over at 2 a.m. in the morning. She wanted to know what was up with the music and hearing children laughing. She was really angry, and normally she was a very nice lady. Even when we told her our experience, she didn't believe us. Eventually, George's mom sold the house, and even now I wonder if the people that bought it experienced the haunting the way we did. Why the circus music and the kids, I still don't know. And I think that there was at least three or four spirits living in that house. Maybe before the house was built, when it was maybe just a field, some type of circus had been erected there. So many things could have happened that trapped those spirits there. Now, the last story is about a haunted location slash urban myth. Now, the location is in a town called Baraboo. It's in Sauk County, Wisconsin. Now, the history on this is that, or the story that's behind this is that several years ago, there was an employee of the Ringling Brothers Circus who owned property on Ringling Road. Now, the reason why there's a Ringling Road is that this is where the family that established the circus, this is where they're from. Now the story goes that this employee, one day he murdered a couple of children by throwing them into his well, and later on he committed suicide by hanging himself. Now, the phenomena is that there is a trail off of Ringling Road that leads to a well, and the reports say that a white image of a woman 
supposedly the mother of the children that were killed can be seen visiting the well at night usually between midnight and 3 a.m. It also says that beyond the well is a shack and inside the shack is a stool that supposedly the man used to hang himself and of course he's supposed to be haunting the shack. Now from what I understand several people have found off uh, through some woodland offeringly rode the actual well and it's not like a regular well it's it's described as being made of stone and it's like a gazebo it's, it's about sits in the middle of the woods it looks like a like a little schoolhouse and it's got a pavilion and it's made of stone and about 50 yards past it where the well is at is the shack now as to finding out whether this any truth to the story about this circus employee who killed the children and threw them in the well and then killed himself, I researched it. I couldn't find anything. However, that doesn't mean anything happened. But, and I don't know if this might be the house in question, back in August of 1933, a lady by the name of Alberta Golmar was butchered in the kitchen of her home. This is, she lived in this same little town of Baraboo. Now, her husband and her had always been involved in the circus business, and she had lived in Baraboo for over 30 years. And uh, she had survived, as a matter of fact, a very famous circus train wreck that occurred in 1918. Now, her husband had died nine years before, and she used to live alone with uh in this little house in Baraboo now through all these years that she had been involved with the the circus business her husband had uh owned a, a a circus she had become familiar to a lot of the people the different circuses as a matter of fact for over 20 years she would travel with her husband but like I said he had died nine years before so she lived there alone now what happened was they found her stabbed over 15 times with a butter knife that was found right next to her in the kitchen of the house. The walls and the ceilings were splattered with blood. Uh, first it was thought that it was robbery only they could only find that a coat was missing. Now the police looked for a connection between this crime and a robbery which had happened only a month before and about four blocks away where a former chauffeur for Al Ringling from Ringling Brothers fame was brutally beaten and robbed. However, within less than 48 hours, the killer, who happened to be a painter who had been working near the Golmar home, was shot dead when he returned to his hotel room. The police had staked him out and when he tried to run he was shot dead and several of her items were found inside his room now the question is is this the house that is referred to by people that have gone off of Ringling Road uh, is there somehow or other where one story was 
maybe made up to be another who knows or maybe that story about the guy that killed the kids is actually true but this is one of the ones that I could find is absolutely factual as to something that really happened there off Ringling Road in Baraboo so anyway guys thank you so much for listening you've been wonderful please don't forget to look me up on Facebook on Twitter this is where I live stream a lot I've got a lot of wonderful shows coming up for you guys thank you so much again for being part of my audience <laughs>